This is R.J. Rushtuni, Easy Chair Number 381, March the 5th, 1997. At the beginning of the year, we ask that you submit questions uh, and we would try to understand them. And we are grateful to those of you who have sent in a few questions. The first one that we'd like to consider this evening is from the Stauffers in Switzerland. The question, could you comment, please, on the verse, 1 Corinthians 5.11, what do we have to really do? Cut all relations with such people described in this verse? Or does Paul mean relations only in church meetings? Well, I think it is important to begin by reading the text involved and to go back and get the whole uh, context. The Corinthian church had a problem with a man guilty of immorality. And beginning in 1 Corinthians 5, 9, he says, I wrote unto you in an epistle not to company with fornicators, yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world, or with the covetous, or extortioners, or with idolaters, for then must ye needs go out of the world. But now I have written unto you not to keep company, if any man that is called a brother be a fornicator, or covetous, or an idolater, or a railer, or a drunkard, or an extortioner, with such an one, no, not to eat. For what have I to do with to judge them that are them also that are without, that is outside the church? Do not ye judge them that are within, but them that are without, God judgeth. Therefore, put away from among yourselves that wicked person. Well, there was uh, a man in the Corinthian congregation who was guilty of uh, fornication. He prided himself, in fact, on the freedom he had. And there were others, apparently, in the church who were ready to say, we are not under the law. Therefore, we can do as we please in certain areas. The only thing to do is to believe on the Lord. Well, Paul's response to that is very, very blunt and emotional, too. There's a great deal of intense writing in this epistle because he is very much distressed over what has been going on. So he tells them, that you are not to have fellowship with those in the church who are fornicators, and also he lists others who are guilty of various offenses and have been found guilty of them by the church. But then he goes on to say, you are not to company with these people or to have fellowship with them, yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world, or with the covetous, or extortioners, or with idolaters. 
of this world, in other words. For then must ye needs go out of the world. You'd have to go out of the world to avoid such people. The problem is, that's what you expect of the ungodly. That's what they are. But the Christian, or the one who professes to be a Christian, has to be different. As a result, what I'm requiring of you is that you excommunicate such people, that you separate yourself from them. And that has since then been, in most churches, those that are faithful at any rate, the stand of the church. Now, it isn't a pleasant one because it very often involves separation from people close to you. But it is a moral requirement. We cannot tolerate evil. Let me add that uh, some churches have tended to require this kind of shunning, as it is sometimes called, when the violation is a violation of church law, not of God's law. And that's altogether wrong. Now, we, yes? I think, Rush, as you indicated, there are two extremes to avoid here. A lot of churches, uh, and not only liberal churches, a lot of evangelical churches, they wouldn't excommunicate anybody even though there are serious violations of the law of God. But then there's the other extreme, as you indicated, of churches who will excommunicate just because uh, they don't like something that the, the members don't like something that the minister said or some minor point that does not deal with God's law. And that's just as evil. I mean, it has to be yes. a clear violation of the law of God, and not only clear, but a contumacious one. Uh, the goal in the church is redemption, not ultimately excommunication. It should be a last resort. And some churches go hog wild on that, and that's just as evil as those churches that would never excommunicate at all. I'm glad you mentioned that these sins have to be contumacious because basically the uh, healthy position of the church has been that if it is a sin of weakness, they take another stand. Very often dealing with new converts whose background is one of flagrant immorality, there are occasions when they fall by the wayside. They must be dealt with strictly and yet mercifully. And so the church has striven to temper judgment with mercy. I know of a man that attended our church in Ohio, Rush, the previous church. He was essentially excommunicated uh, because he uh, grew a mustache and refused to shave his mustache. Now, that is an extreme, but there are some churches out there that are that are like that. Yes. Uh, at the whim of the elders, you know, as one church we said, if you know, if the elders tell you to have white wall tires or not, you know, and all that sort of thing, that happens all too often by yes. ecclesiocrats. And but then again, there's the other extreme of the many of the evangelicals who allow all sorts of adulteries and slanders and things go on and never address it. Both extremes are wrong. Any other comments on that? 
Well, let's go to another question. This is from David Ingram. Were the, it's in two parts. The first, were the colonies of 1776 biblically justified to rebel against England? I'm going to be selfish and uh, answer that one also first. It's a question I've often been asked. And I think it is an important question because our textbooks don't deal with the issue accurately. Uh, to begin, there was no rebellion against England. England was not the owner or the overlord over the American colonies. They had only one connection with England. They shared a common king. King George III was king of England, king of Scotland, king of Wales, king of Ireland, North Ireland, king of New York, king of Virginia, and so on. He had a chartered, or to use the modern term, a constitutional uh, relationship to each of those possessions that were his. Now, the Declaration of Independence is not a declaration of independence from England. They were already independent of England, in fact, if not in actual practice, because you must remember that King George III, for about 20 years of his long reign, was mentally incompetent. It was a hereditary problem caused by too much inbreeding. Well, as a result, the king's ministers took over and began to rule the colonies. And they, in effect, were putting them under parliament, which had no jurisdiction. Now, the interesting thing is, and I haven't seen any work that deals with this, but for some time, Parliament was working to take over the royal prerogatives. Under Queen Anne, a lot of this began. She uh, simply appointed a minister who pleased her, and he ran the country. And increasingly, he allowed Parliament to share the power with him. But Parliament had no legal power, even over England in some of the realms where they uh, were governing, and certainly none over the colonies. Well, with George I, who succeeded Queen Anne, you had a king who was a German ruler of Hanover and whose uh, language uh, remained German. He never really learned to speak English. Now with George III's periodic incompetence mentally, the forces in Parliament 
were ready to take over and govern these realms. This was, of course, illegal. The Declaration of Independence, apart from the first paragraph, which is a series of philosophical generalizations using the language of the time to appeal to the European powers, is a long document that lists one violation after another by King George or his ministers of their charters. Their charters or constitutions. It's a very detailed and specific uh, list of violations. And these violations rendered the charters or constitutions null and void and in effect dissolved the relationship. On top of that, there were a number of illegal acts that uh, marked the uh, council's activities towards the colonies, illegalities and the kind of things they did and taxes they imposed, and also an attempt to supplant their right to name their judges and governors. On top of that, when the colonies continued to protest these things, they sent troops to enforce their requirements. Now, troops in those days were quartered on the people. Quartering is something modern Americans know next to nothing about. Quartering was a very, very great evil in that they could put one or more soldiers into your house and you had to provide board and room and he was the law. He could molest your wife or your daughters and you had no possibility of doing anything about it. That was the step that earlier uh, Louis XIV took to destroy the Huguenots by quartering troops on them and giving them total freedom to do as they pleased. Thus they turned Catholic. Well, those that didn't fled from the country or in effect fled into the hills. It was a vicious thing. Now, the Constitution felt so strongly about this that one of the things that it forbids is a quartering of troops. And the brief experience they had with it was a horrifying one about which the history books tell us nothing. So, the colonies did not revolt against England. They declared that their contractual relationship with King George III was rendered null and void. And this was it. They were subjected to an armed invasion. Of course, some of the troops were already there. And this also was illegal. So the whole thing was uh, justifiable. The 
colonies used their legal uh, prerogatives to resist Parliament. Now, they put their lives on the line because Parliament would have hung them if they had won. But that is the nature of the so-called American Revolution, which was really the War of Independence. Now, one of the great myths is that the <clears throat> American Revolution basically sprang from the same fountainhead as the French Revolution. Which came later. Which came later, of course. Rush, as you were talking, I was writing down some points of contrast between the American and the the so-called American Revolution, the War of Independence, and the French Revolution. The American Revolution was very principled and law-based, whereas the French Revolution was anarchic. The American Revolution was based on uh, a long tradition, whereas the French Revolution meddled in abstraction and uh, philosophical things like that. The American War for Independence was basically issued from a Christian ethos, whereas the French Revolution issued from an atheistic ethos. And the American Revolution was trying to restore something old, so it really wasn't a revolution. In fact, I think in your book, um, This Independent Republic, isn't there a chapter on the War of yes. Independence conservative yes. counter-revolution? Yes. Whereas, of course, the French Revolution was trying to make something over new, um, which is pointed out so well in Billington's Fire in the Minds of Men. It was a new religion they were trying to espouse. So it's really not uh, fair to compare those two. There was very little of that sentiment in the colonies. There was Thomas Paine, of course, but beyond him and a few other radicals, it was, it was a very principled, Christian-like approach to the situation, which was certainly not true in the, in the French Revolution. Thomas Paine was an Englishman, <clears throat> who came over when the trouble began here, hoped to command it and move it in the direction he liked. His uh, two pamphlets were enormously popular, but as his general position became more and more known, uh, he found he was less and less welcome, so he left this country. He tried also to exert influence on the French Revolution and they threw him in jail. Uh, he apparently had uh, quite an attraction for underage girls mm -hmm. and that was the reason for his arrest and imprisonment. Uh, Monroe, later a president, was our ambassador in France at the time and he got Monroe out of jail, contrary to the advice of Washington, who felt that uh, Payne was not our kind of man. Well, you mentioned that the, um, uh, the only connection with the, the uh, England was that we shared a common monarch when the... Uh, when the explorers went out, back then you had real monarchs that were not only the head of state, but that they were head of government. And they went out under the authority of the king, and when they claimed land, this was true of the French, the Spanish, they claimed it in the name of the monarch. So they, that, that's why Jamestown was named after King James. It was, uh, they were out under his authority, and they named the land 
or their colony very often after their king. But when the first colonists were sent out, they were guaranteed something. The English colonists were guaranteed all the rights of Englishmen in England, which was very significant because the French didn't do that. And so the people who went to uh, New France were basically government employees. There were no families, very few women, and that's one of the reasons the British eventually overcame them, because there weren't that many of them. They were government employees. There was no sense in resisting that hard. And so the British eventually overcame them, something we that, that is still some carried sometimes in history textbooks is about one of the real advantages the colonists had throughout the colonial period is that they had the power of the purse strings. The reason they had the power of purse strings is that Englishmen had the right to approve taxation, the English citizens in their legislatures. Now, in England, that was Parliament. Parliament had the right to approve taxes. That was a hard-won right of Englishmen. Well, when they came over to this country, the colonists of Virginia had that right. Mm -hmm. The colonists of all the different colonies. And by the way, they didn't consider themselves colonists. They were Virginians, and the Virginians called the people of Massachusetts foreigners. That's right. Because they were a different colony. Absolutely. They were were as different as different parts Mm -hmm. of... uh, the British Commonwealth, like mm-hmm. uh, U- United Kingdom and Canada, mm-hmm. they share, share the same monarch, mm-hmm. but they're they're mm-hmm. separate. Now, when the the king had grand, all the kings had grand ideas, and every royal governor that was sent over, because the king did have the right to appoint the governor of a royal colony. By the end of the uh, colonial period, most of them were actually had royal uh, governments. The king would send over a royal governor with a long set of instructions, and every royal governor would come over here and says, it's time this legislature and this colony got whipped into shape and it did, did what the king wants it. Now, here's my list from the king of what you are to do. And the colonists would listen very politely and say, thank you very much, but all that takes money. And you'll do what we give you money for. And the colonists won every time because the king did not have the right to force them to pay taxes to do anything they didn't want to do. It was called the power of the purse strings, and it was very, very essential to the freedom of the colonists. And the legislatures won every time in in the colonies. Now, during the 18th century, you had several, what we sometimes call the French and Indian Wars, and these culminated with the defeat of New France. And Britain now took over what we now call Canada. And the king foresaw at this point that there was a British Empire on the horizon. And the whole idea of each part of the British Empire being completely independent didn't exactly work for an empire, not not as they envisioned it. And they said, we have to have more control. Parliament being close to the king, and at that point basically bought by the king, bribed by the king they, um, heavily, Parliament was the logical one to be the instrument of controlling this this emerging empire. And uh, the colonists didn't want any part of it. Now, to a certain extent, the colonists went along with some of the trade laws. They figured there has to be some means of, you know, we'll go along with some of that. But they always and every time resisted any idea of direct taxation because that was unquestionably, I mean, who controlled trade between this colony and another colony? They kind of admitted that was a, a gray area 
and uh, as far as authority goes. But they always laid down the law when it came to paying taxes because only Virginia's legislature had the right to enact taxes for the Virginians and only North Carolina's had the right to pass it for North Carolina, etc. And if you look at the early documents, I believe it's of the First Continental Congress, they, they speak very heavily of the rights of the colonial legislatures to enact taxes and not Parliament. Parliament was basically had no legal role in the colonies. It's like California deciding that because Nevada is so small that they have the right to pass taxes over the people of Nevada. Mm -hmm. uh, they, the, the real reason Parliament was doing this is because the king was helping them. So they declared their independence not from Parliament because Parliament's not mentioned in the Declaration That's of Independence. Right. The king was conspiring with Parliament to do this. Mm -hmm. And ultimately they said the king's breaking the law and so we'll sever our ties with with the king and they never bothered to mention Parliament yeah, that's right. in, in uh, the Declaration of Independence. And they pointed out the ways that he had broken faith with them and um, I mean weren't they just actually really only asserting the rights of natural born Englishmen? I mean that's all that they really had wanted and uh, they said in their um, through a long train of abuses that they this wasn't a spur-of-the-moment thing of course and even after the war started, they sent what was called the Olive Branch Petition, mm -hmm. which basically said, told the king, look, if you stop Parliament, um, we're willing to be peaceful and obedient subjects to you, but not to Parliament. Right. And the king basically said, that's rebellion. Mm -hmm. And uh, the king wouldn't consider it. Yeah. So it was a year after the fighting began, remember, mm -hmm. that the Declaration of Independence was signed. It was not the cause of the war. It came a year after the start of the war. Mm -hmm. But it did explain their motivation. <clears throat> well, there is another part to the question from David Ingram, or a second one. The Declaration of Independence allows for the people to rebel against the government if it becomes tyrannical. How do we know when this state of affairs has arrived? And is it biblically justified to do so? Well, that can get a person a long argument pro and con uh, on the practical, pragmatic side. Uh, such a revolt now would be a disaster because in most countries, the firepower in the hands of the state is such that uh, any resistance on the part of the people is absurd. However, the Declaration does so state, and Jefferson held to this uh, opinion of a justifiable revolution and went so far as to say that maybe every so often, a, uh, every 20 years, civil government, yes, yeah. every 20 years should be overthrown and replaced. But he was just shooting off his mouth, I think, <laughs> with that. Now, nobody has ever bothered to go into the background of that particular aspect of the 
declaration. The fact that Jefferson held that opinion would not have been enough to put it over where a good many uh, hard-headed men were present at the time that the Declaration was drawn up. Plus the fact that you had a good Calvinistic minister, John Witherspoon, present, who if this had uh, been anti-scriptural, would have very quickly objected. Now, where does this come from? Well, out of Calvin's Institutes. Calvin was against lawless insurrections and revolutions. What he did say was possible and permissible. He did not say desirable, but possible and permissible was this, that if conditions reached such a point that there were many lower magistrates, we would say public officials who are still important, and they say that the central government has gone beyond its legal uh, limits and call upon people to resist it, then if you have a substantial body of lower magistrates who take such a stance, then it is permissible. So uh, there are those who would go further than... uh, Calvin in this regard and others who would not go even as far as Calvin did. Well, to continue, do any of you men have an opinion about the clause in the Declaration calling for periodic uh, upheavals if the federal government or the central government goes astray? Well, that was a historically conditioned idea, obviously, that was put in there because of the pressure of the times. I agree with what Calvin said, Rush, as you've expressed, that if strong lower territorial magistrates uh, are willing to protect those citizens under their control from the tyranny of higher powers, they're justified in doing so. But if there's to be any armed resistance, it has to be very principled and according to law. It can't be anarchy. Uh, just taking to the streets and gunning down people in front of abortion clinics and all of that murderous nonsense. Well, the the lower magistrate thing has really started in a small way with this home rule. That's right. uh, Effort that I think started down in Arizona. Mm -hmm. And in fact, this county has adopted uh, home rule. Mm -hmm. And uh, many counties have in the western states because of the the federal government's uh, taking over property within Mm -hmm. the state's boundaries. Well, Wyoming is a state uh, largely like that. And as you said, Nevada is. Um, And that's the right way to do it, rather than just people getting their guns out and blazing. I don't know if anything's ever come of it. I did hear once, I believe it was Colorado had um, said that any further federal mandates had to come with, uh, be accompanied by constitutional justification for 
those federal demands, which is an interesting position to take uh, because that's exactly what all the states should be requiring, what we should be requiring of our Congress as well, is, is uh, constitutional justification for what they are mm-hmm. demanding. Because in many cases, there is no constitutional justification. That's for right. instance, a good example is, why do we have national uh, parks and national forests when the Constitution gives very specific reasons for the ownership of federal land? That's right. And uh, they use, what they do is they stretch, you know, as the courts always do, they stretch it. I, be- I believe it kicked around in the courts for many years, and some federal judge t- finally had to come up with some rationale for national parks and national forests. He mm-hmm. said, well, they're actually defense installations, which is constitutional because they have minerals and resources which could be used in time of national crisis. But the original question was about the American Revolution, and it's often been brought up that the uh, Continental Congresses were completely uh, extra-legal assemblies, which in actuality they were, and the colonies even realized that, and some of the colonies did what the Con- Continental Congress has asked, and some did not, especially when it came to supporting Washington's army. It was right. very, very spotty uh, obedience to, to what they uh, what they asked. In effect, what they were is they were uh, a group of uh, uh, foreign ministers, basically, meeting to conduct an alliance and to uh, organize an alliance, because the colonies were all strictly independent that's right. because they had separated from a king but that's all they shared in common is, right. is the war and that's why the, when they they unified in fact Patrick Henry's uh, proposal for uh, independence not Patrick Henry uh, Richard Henry Lee of Virginia his resolution had two parts be it resolved I, I think it was that these you know, colonies are and the right ought to be free and independent states. The second part of that same resolution was that they investigate the Union. Yeah. And that eventually turned into the uh, uh, Articles of Confederation. But everything they did, and in fact even the Declaration of Independence, the men signed it, but these men signed it for uh, New Hampshire, uh, not New Hampshire. Well, Maine. They were representing Maine, Massachusetts, exactly. Rhode Island, etc. Right. They represented the states, so they were they were very careful to be what what they did was not as Samuel Adams, John Hancock. It That's was right. as representatives of the colonial legislatures and under their authority. And there was a lot of disputes among them, precisely because of that. I want to recommend. Uh, Emmy Bradford's book, Original Intentions, he points out the in, the uh, intense localism. The problem today is everybody thinks, almost everybody, thinks in terms of, very federalistically, in terms of the central, central government, Washington, D.C. He pointed out all of the differences between the states uh, when they, uh, and their representatives when they came to the Constitutional Convention. They had some very specific things they wanted to accomplish. They weren't trying to make some huge, perfect, ideal, just social order or uh, abstract rights or abstract equality. They just wanted to do the best that they could under the conditions. And Mark, you're exactly right. I mean, there were all these competing interests, and they came up with a very sound document. But today that's completely lost when it's interpreted by liberal, a liberal judiciary as though they were interested sort of in abstract human rights. That's, that wasn't uh, in their mind at all, Bradford points out. We must remember, too, 
that uh, we cannot understand this country unless we realize that it was created to be a federal union, not a centralized state. That for a long, long time there was very little in Washington, D.C., other than the White House and a handful of clerks. The Supreme Court met two weeks in a year. Congress didn't meet much longer. And there was very little control over the states and over the people. And if you were in a particular state, uh, even the state government did not have much power over you. It was truly very, very much a free country. So it's difficult for people today to realize that even in this century, Washington, D.C. began as a small community. I have a picture which I haven't been able to locate since we moved here 21-some years ago. It's a picture uh, looking out from the White House steps in the year, years of uh, President Taft's presidency. It shows... Uh, the Taft Sorry about that. family cow tethered out on what is now the front lawn. <laughs> well, it was very much a small town atmosphere. It was after Taft, with Woodrow Wilson, World War I, the creation of a vast bureaucracy that we began to have the kind of federal government that we have now. The seeds of it go all the way back, of course, to Abraham Lincoln. But it was with Wilson that we have the modern federal power. And as a result, uh, you have to realize the founding fathers never even remotely imagined any such power as now exists in the central government. Well, the Constitution itself says that whatever we don't deal with, of course, is uh, can be dealt with by the people in the states. I mean, the reserve the right to the people in the states. That's something that's not often under, understood. Or the Congress should be a full-time job, mm -hmm. you know, was, of course, yes. a fairly recent, uh, fairly recent development. Well, let's go on to another question. Uh, this is one of a series from the Reverend Byron Snap. Well, Byron, I'm going to start with the last and the easiest, <laughs> and maybe I'll deal with the others in another context or some other way, perhaps by mail. The easiest question for me is provide an update on Armenia. And uh, as I give my answer, don't hesitate to interrupt if you want to ask some questions about it. Well, 
the Soviet Union with its ostensible breakup divided into its constituent units. Supposedly, we have a free society, but there are a number of serious questions. There are reasons to believe that this perestroika was planned as a way to delude the West and move, as Golitsyn said, towards a convergence of the U.S. and the USSR. It's a curious fact that in every uh, one of the constituent countries, it was a member of the Communist Party who was elected to be president. Then and since, in every election, it's been only the Communists who win, sometimes because they're the only names that are permitted on the ballot. Well, the situation is no different in Armenia, but with a peculiar twist. Uh, the uh, president is Derbatrosyan, which translated into English is Lord Peterson. Curious fact. He is a descendant of the ancient nobility. And even though he was a member of the Communist Party, the very fact that he, in preference to other communists, got the nod indicates a bit about the temper of the people there. It's a country that is divided into two parts. What Stalin did when uh, he saw the somewhat vocal at times yearning for independence in Armenia was to break up the country. He separated Adorno and Karabakh, two ancient centers of Armenia, with a 60-mile corridor which had every Armenian in it removed and sent to a slave labor camp. And the intervening area peopled with Azeri Turks or Azerbaijan peoples. Now, the peoples of Adorno-Karabakh, the first opportunity they had, rebelled against Azerbaijan. They were, in fact, whipping the Azerbaijans totally when the UN stepped in and issued some threats and ultimatums so that they had to uh, stop the effort to regain some of the land, particularly the connecting land. They set up their own country, and while working closely with Armenia, have to be an independent realm. Now there is another interesting fact about Armenia. 
the Russians, somewhat reluctantly, have provided troops to help defend the Armenian uh, area. It is not because they are partial to Armenia, but because Armenia has an importance to them, even though it's the smallest uh, in population of any of the so-called former Soviet republics. The reason is simply this. If you go all over the old Soviet Union to the areas that are oh, uh, Turkish or Uzbek or Russian or whatever, the main engineering in every one of those is done by Armenians. Armenian engineers were the backbone of whatever was uh, at all viable in the old Soviet Union. They still need them. And they're not willing to uh, be too harsh on Armenia. So, as against an, a threat from Azerbaijan or Turkey or Iran... Uh, they're ready to uh, be moderately helpful. And the army is basically behind that, not Yeltsin. The problem there is that the army is now without pay and hasn't been paid for a long time, and it is falling apart and the equipment disintegrating. Now, there are some reasons why there are pressures upon Armenia, not only by the Turks, because the Azeris of Azerbaijan are Turks. Up north, the Chechens of Chechnya are Turks, the most vicious. And of course, there's Turkey. Then, uh, you have Kurdish peoples, on the uh, section of northern Iran who want independence and who are also uh, Muslims. So Armenia is surrounded mainly by Islamic countries. The only other Christian country in the area has very little remains of Christianity, Georgia. Well, some of the countries to the east of Armenia have so much oil, according to estimates, that they will make Arabia look like uh, just an oil puddle. They want this oil to go through Armenia but they don't want to have it of any benefit to Armenia. There's a blockade of oil and other things. We have supposedly said that Turkey will receive no aid as long as it's 
aiding and abetting and supporting the blockade and prohibiting supplies from getting through to Armenia. But right now we're about to disregard that, which is therefore uh, surface appearances. So it's quite a crisis. Uh, the winters are cold there. It's high mountainous country. There's virtually no fuel. And uh, it's a country in perpetual crisis because its neighbors are all dedicated to its destruction. Also, it has been without any real contact with the Western world and Christendom since the beginning of this century, 1914. As a result, it is in a critical situation. I was interested two, three years ago to learn how backward medicine in Bulgaria and Romania and Yugoslavia was. They had been cut off only since World War II. And yet the great leaps forward in medicine, both in surgery and in wonder drugs and the like, have come since then. So the isolation is a devastating one. At the same time, it's likely to increase because our policy in Yugoslavia is total support for the Muslims, none for the Christians. Now, by the wildest estimate, you can only say there are 40% Muslims in Bosnia. And yet, we have decreed, together with the UN, that the civil government has to be in the control of Muslims, even though they are the minority. And we have received a viciously false picture of the situation there with regard to Serbia, and a great deal of uh, whitewashing of Croatia. It's a very grim picture. We have tried to uh, do some broadcasting of the gospel uh, with Aaron Kayayan in Armenia. I don't know how long we'll be able to continue. It's very difficult to get in and out, very difficult to take things in and out. You can only fly in, and you're flying over enemy territories, and it's always risky. So the situation is a very, very grim one, and... It's like other critical spots in the world. It gets no attention because it is Christian. 
And the goal of Islam is to wipe out all Christianity in the Middle East. There are pockets of it in Syria, a fair population there, and in Lebanon. But elsewhere it is gone. Are there any questions you'd like to ask about this? Why do they fear it? What? Why do they fear it? And why do the Muslims fear Christianity in such small pockets if they are no major threat to them as far as numbers or amount of territory? It's a good question. First, they hate it. Second, although in the early years of the, uh, or generations of the spread of Islam, it was able to overrun and conquer a great many areas, although at that time not Armenia, nor Georgia, they now have a uh, an intense fear of Christian power, Christian military ability. They can't compete with it. During World War One, General Antonik, an Armenian general with only a bare handful of men, at every turn defeated the Turks. One of the British officials said that uh, he was certainly one of the greatest military strategists in all of history. But he's not very much known. Well, with very, very poor weaponry, the Armenians of Adorno-Karabakh whipped the Azeri Turks again and again and again. They don't trust Christians. They realize that Christians now are the people with the faith and power to stand and fight. So there's an intense hostility. Everything is being done, by the way, in Lebanon to wipe out the Christians there. What about the state of the church today in Armenia in, as a result of this rush? Well, the Church of Armenia, which is not one of the Eastern Orthodox churches, but in its general position is more like what the Church of England was at the beginning of the century, was for a long time under the control of the Soviet Union. The church is a rather strange one uh, in its government because it has a presiding bishop called Catholicos, who is comparable on a lower level to the Pope or the Orthodox Patriarch. <clears throat> However, uh, the problem with his office is that the Church of Armenia 
in its origin was a compromise between the apostolic Christianity, the church established in the New Testament age in Armenia, which was, we would say, semi-congregational, semi-Presbyterian. And then the Episcopal Church, which in the early 300s was established by the Crown uh, under the leadership of St. Gregory the Illuminator. The two groups finally came together with some compromise on both sides so that to this day the elders of every local congregation in the Church of Armenia send delegates when there is a need for a new Catholicos to be elected to elect him. The elders elect the bishops. The elders elect the Catholicos. Well, that's unlike any other Episcopal or Catholic or Orthodox Church. The power is there on the lowest level, the local congregation. And this made it uh, very difficult for the uh, Marxists to control the church. They did, to my knowledge, uh, execute one uh, Catholicos by smothering him. That way no Marks show. You smother him to death. But uh, by and large, The church has uh, a background here again like the old Church of England, high church, low church, that is evangelical and broad church. So those three strands have been present. What has happened with the new Catholicos and what the future will be, I can't say. Well, our time is over. Please send in any questions that you have, and we will do what we can to answer them. Thank you all for listening, and God bless you.